2: Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight remembering Madeleine Albright, the first woman to serve as U.S. Secretary of State, who passed away last month at the age of 84. Her funeral was held this morning at the storied Washington National Cathedral, where our nation's top leaders sat in the front row. President Biden, the Obamas, the Clintons, and their daughter, Chelsea, as well as Al Gore. First Lady Jill Biden was not in attendance because of her work at the community college where she teaches, and Vice President Harris remains in isolation following a positive COVID test. But the number of powerful people who gathered today in Washington was a signal of just how important and beloved Secretary Albright was. She not only contributed greatly to our democracy, but she was also an embodiment of the American dream. Her family fled Prague to escape the Nazis when she was just two years old. They returned after the war and then had to flee again when communists overthrew the government. Throughout her diplomatic career, she focused on spreading democracy around the world, especially by expanding NATO, which President Biden emphasized in his eulogy. But she knew that democracy was fragile, and towards the end of her life, she warned about the return of the global danger of fascism. Writing in her book, aptly named Fascism, A Warning, that some may view the book and its title as alarmists. Good. We should be awake to the assault on democratic values that has gathered strength in many countries abroad and is dividing America at home. Her mentee, our third female Secretary of State, Hillary Rodham Clinton, drove that point home in her eulogy.
3: During the last phone call, two weeks before she died, She talked about the importance of what President Biden is doing to rally the world against Putin's horrific invasion of Ukraine and the urgent work of defending democracy at home and around the world. We must heed the wisdom of her life and the cause of her public service. Stand up to dictators and demagogues From the battlefields of Ukraine to the halls of our own capital. Defend democracy at home just as vigorously as we do abroad. That message
2: could not be more relevant today. With our democracy hanging on by its fingertips, we have crossed the Rubicon to the point where issues like racism and anti-Semitism are back in business in the public context in America as a point of not just social, but also of political contention. A new Politico morning consult poll reveals that just 25% of Republicans think that it's a major problem if a political candidate is accused of homophobic remarks. 38% say the same of racist remarks and 47% for anti-Semitism. The numbers are slightly better when it comes to sexual misconduct. 68% of Republicans would have a problem with accusations like that. And domestic violence, 67%. By comparison, more than 70 percent of Democrats think all of these issues would be a major problem for a candidate. And while that's a sad state of affairs, it does go much further with Republicans trying to use our own democratic institutions to attack democracy itself. Regarding January 6th, there is new reporting from CNN that shows that Pennsylvania Republican Scott Perry pushed to have the nation's top intelligence official investigate baseless conspiracy theories. While working to replace the acting attorney general with an acolyte willing to do Trump's bidding. Five days after the election, Perry wrote to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows that, quote, DNI needs to ask NSA to immediately seize and begin looking for international comms related to Dominion, referring to Dominion voting machines. NBC News has not independently confirmed these texts. And you can cannot forget Marjorie Taylor Greene, who texted that the only way to save the Republic would be for Trump to declare martial law, spelled incorrectly, of course. And in their inability to accept that their Trump lost the election, they even endangered members of their own party. I mean, that lynch mob that came to the Capitol to hunt Democratic lawmakers and Speaker Pelosi also infamously chanted, hang Mike Pence. And we now know that despite their silence and acquiescence to the first ever attempted American coup, Republican leadership is and has been very much aware of that danger. Thanks to new recordings of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's talking to his whip, Steve Scalise, about Congressman Matt Gaetz's rhetoric right after the insurrection.
4: This is
5: serious to cut this out. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's, that's uh, I mean, it's potentially illegal. What are you doing? Well, he's putting people in jeopardy. And he, he doesn't need to be doing this. He, we, we saw what people would do in the Capitol, um, you know, and these people came
6: prepared you know, with everything
2: else. Joining me now is Charles Blow, New York Times columnist and MSNBC political analyst, and Nancy McLean, author of Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. Thank you both for being here. And Charles, I have to start with you. You know, in a normal world, the things that we heard— um, Kevin McCarthy, the, the House Republican leader, say, on January 6th would be normative, acceptable, and even lauded. I mean, he had these moments of clarity, and he said what any of us would have said. This is unacceptable. These people are, are going to get someone hurt. The country's too crazy. Well, on what he said specifically about Matt Gates, we now know that Steve Scalise, who is the House minority whip, met with Gates, met with um, Congressman Gates apologized to him. He said, I'm sorry if this has caused you problems, the Louisiana Republican. This is according to Politico. I haven't been able to get all the details of what these accusations were, but I was being told things, and I know members were getting death threats, and I was just very sensitive to that. And when asked if he would apologize once he had all the information that Gates didn't commit a criminal act by attacking Liz Cheney in public following the Capitol siege by then-President Donald Trump, supporter Scalid said, sure. This is the world in which the supposed leaders, apologized to Matt Gates that this might cause him problems, to say nothing of the charges or the accusations against him about teenage girls. Your thoughts?
4: Well, I mean, this is part for the course at this point. The moment that McCarthy turned around and went to Mar-a-Lago and kissed the ring and came back and turned his back on all the things that he had said in the wake of the January 6th uh, insurrection attempt— you knew that this was their playbook, which was to say that they were going to kowtow to Donald Trump, that they still believed that Donald Trump was the leader of the party and that their path to victory was being attached to Donald Trump. So anyone who is on that side, who is always a Trump, a Trumpster, a Trump supporter, a Trump bolster, those people are really the people who are in power. The, the McCarthy's of the world, the Scalise's of the world just want to have control of Congress. McCarthy wants desperately to be the Speaker of the House. And so he's gonna do whatever it takes. And if that means to kowtow to people like Gates, that's what they're going to do.
2: It's, 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 it's a strange world. Let me, let me play very quickly for both of you. This is what Bi- uh, uh, President Biden said um, at Madeleine Albright's eulogy today. Take a listen.
5: I traveled to Poland and spoke about all that was at stake in our world And for democracy and freedom. But when I mentioned the name of Madeleine Albright, there was a deafening cheer. It was spontaneous, it was real. For her name is still synonymous with America as a force for good in the world.
2: You know, Nancy, you know, the last um, of all the great things, she did lots of great things with Madeleine Albright. Last thing she did was write a book called On Fascism and and uh, Warning—Fascism, a warning, I should say, was the name of her book—warning that fascism, not only abroad, but in the United States, um, was a real and and dangerous threat. So she's now known for that kind of good in the world, as President Biden said. What— are One of the great political parties in this country, um, the, the, the once great parties, um, the Republican Party will now be known for things like this. Um, this is Scott Perry um, to Mark Meadows on saying they should install their own person at DOJ who would essentially overrule the election and use the power of law to do it. Scott Perry is saying, Mark, you should call Jeff. I just got off the phone with him, and he explained to me why the principal deputy won't work, especially with the FBI. They view it as not having the authority to enforce what needs to be done. Mark Meadows responds, I got it. I think I understand. Let me work on the deputy position. This is a congressman of the United States urging the chief of staff to the president of the United States to replace the attorney general so they can steal an election. That now is what the Republican Party is known for. Does it even matter if their leaders apologize to the members who promoted that?
3: I think it's a little late for apologies. Um, they probably would be insincere, as is pretty clear at this point. But I think it's really important for all Americans to really take note of where we are. Um, we're finding out more and more as the January uh, the House uh, Select Committee on the January 6th insurrection and attempted coup does its work that the um, this was an, obviously a coup attempt. And it's also as if you take a longer look, which I tend to do as a historian, we see that this goes back, you know, the the Tea Party faction of Republicans and the big donors who back them have not accepted outcomes when they're party has lost since 2008. When President Obama was elected as the first black president, they, uh, you know, pushed the birther conspiracy. They created the Freedom Caucus. And we now know from the House Select Committee that the Freedom Caucus were the most complicit members uh, in the events of January 6th. And I would say if people want a sense of how serious this is and the kinds of terms that Madeleine Albright laid out that you just quoted, we should look to the Conservative Political Action Committee, which is going to be holding its May meeting in Hungary, Mm. Viktor Orban's Hungary. Hungary. So as you said at the top of the hour, so rightly, Joy, these people are manipulating the tools of democracy to undermine democracy and install autocracy. And that's why they're going to see Viktor Orban, who is an expert in this and who rigged the rules so he could just uh, win a very secure re-election with a comfortable margin uh, to work with in their parliament.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, on another network, one of his greatest fans has the most popular primetime show uh, on cable news. You know, Charles, it it is—the Republican Party has become this sort of inverted pyramid, but the inversion didn't begin with Donald Trump. And I've been saying this probably every night this week, and don't get sick of it, audience. It started with the Tea Party at least in the modern era. And people sort of let the Tea Party go by, and now they—there are people even to the right of them, but they are now the big bulk of the Republican establishment in the House of Representatives, and even in part of the Senate. Rand Paul and others who are Tea Partiers. How did we—well, the media in general miss that and miss the importance of it? I know at the time you were writing a lot about it, and we were both, I think, talking a lot about the racial dynamic there that had to do with President Obama, who was the physical alarm— that people of color, that young people, that the people who they don't think are the right people could have, could elect a president?
4: Well, I I think that, you know, if we step a little bit back, we realize that, you know, these people do not believe in democracy. And if we step back from there, we understand that America has never on the national level ever truly been a democracy. But for the 48 years from the Voting Rights Act through the time that the the Supreme Court gutted it, you had the closest we've ever gotten to having an actual democracy where one person equal one vote. All those votes had the most power, had the same amount of power. But they didn't really, because the way that that uh, that the uh, electors, uh, or, or for the electoral college or a portion, no, you never have one vote you have in the same power from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But what, what happened with Obama and Tea Party inflamed something that was already existing globally, which was the people from the global south were migrating north. People from the global north who were mostly white people across the globe, mostly, not all, uh, were having lower... Uh, fertility rates. And so people started to panic. At a certain point, you were going to get too many people who look like them, not enough people who look like us. We will lose control of culture and country. That was happening here in America as well. But Obama, as you said, epitomized it. He personified it. And that caused the panic. And at the very same time that that Obama came into office, you had the Supreme Court do what they did to the Voting Rights Act in in, uh, 2013. And now you had The perfect environment to do what Republicans wanted to do anyway, which is to get rid of the entire idea of democracy, to to create, to tailor their own electorate rather than appealing to an electorate. And that is the outgrowth. What we're seeing now is the outgrowth of that, which is they they tried to do it then. There was tons of voter suppression during that cycle. It just wasn't wasn't enough that they still lost in 2020. And so they went back to the drawing board with even more force. And now they're suppressing votes at an even greater clip. And so this is what we are seeing right now. And if we don't connect all of those dots, then we miss the big picture.
2: Indeed. And Nancy, you know, to come at it from, you know, speaking of this coming at it from an historical perspective, you know the Confederacy lost the war, and then through the redemption movement, they won the post-war and really held on to and have held on to the narratives about history, the narratives about this country, the, even the narratives about the Civil War itself. And it's only now that people are trying to break loose of that sort of Confederate redemption, real victory over our society. This feels like the second victory for that same Confederate style of politics. So since we've failed at it the first time around after the Civil War. How do we succeed at it now? How do we succeed in rolling that back and having the multiracial society that we should have?
3: Yeah, uh, that is such such an apt analogy. And I know for my friends and colleagues who are historians of the Civil War and Reconstruction, they are absolutely dumbfounded at this public conversation because at least since the 1960s, and you could go back to the 1930s with W.E.B. Du Bois' towering work, there has been a very different narrative that presented Reconstruction as our first attempt at a multiracial democracy among free people. Uh, and it was a magnificent effort. And as you say, it was overthrown by violence by force by ugly mythology by historians who you know would sit at places like Columbia and Harvard and write essentially trash we can see now that was based on the notion that African-Americans were inferior and didn't deserve to hold political power. Now we see that back. Uh, I think the most important thing that can happen is for our leaders to really sound the alarm much more than they are doing. You know, I think some voices have been powerful. You know, Jamie Raskin, Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland has been a great voice for the House Select Committee, who, by the way, just revealed that Mike Pence said, I won't get in that car when they tried Mm -hmm. to take him from the Capitol. So, you know, we. but we need much more of that. I think there are too many Democratic officials who are acting like this is just another election, you know, and we're just going to talk about inflation versus populist economics. And we're going to duck the culture wars that the white right, I should have said, the the white right is waging against school boards around the country as they also try to make it so that uh, normal people who try to do the right thing as election officials won't do it. Yeah. They have criminalized technical errors with yeah. legislation in ten states, prison yeah. sentences and fines because you counted something wrong as always happens yeah. to a minor. And we—I wish we had more time, but we're going to go into
2: some of that later in the show. Uh, Nancy McLean, Charles Blow, thank you both very much. Uh, Chilling but important to discuss. Up next on The Readout, a surprising diplomatic breakthrough as American captive Trevor Reed is set free by Russia, although two Americans are still being held there. Ambassador Bill Richardson, who has been fighting for Reed's release, joins me next. Plus, the religious right has made big strides in recent court cases. Now, right-wing justices are getting ready to smash the separation of church and state in this country. And— Congresswoman Val Demings joins me on her race to unseat Marco Rubio, Ron DeSantis' absurd culture war against Disney, all that book banning. What happened to you, Florida? The readout continues after this.
1: Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood,
2: Russia and the United States carried out an unexpected prisoner exchange today, trading an American Marine veteran jailed by Moscow for a convicted Russian drug trafficker serving a prison sentence in the U.S. The American, Trevor Reed, had been detained in Russia since 2019, convicted on charges of assaulting two police officers in Moscow. Here he is, uh, pictured with Russia on Russian state TV, um, at an airport in Moscow. NBC News cannot independently verify when, where, and under what circumstances this was shot. Back in March, Reed's parents met with President Biden after demonstrating outside the White House to urge the administration to do more to bring their son home amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, late today, Joey and Paula Reed address the public on their son's return.
7: It's not going to hit us
2: until we see him.
3: I uh, mean, we're, we're excited. Uh, we know he's on the plane, but I think we're really going to it's going to really hit us when we get to put our arms around him.
2: Reed's return has renewed concerns over other Americans still detained in Russia, such as WNBA star Brittany Griner and another former Marine, Paul Whelan. Joining me now is Bill Richardson, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and former governor of New Mexico, and who traveled to Moscow in the hours before the Ukraine war began in hopes of securing Reed's release. Um, thank you so much for being here, Governor um, Ambassador Richardson. I don't know, you have so many titles, I don't know which one to choose. To, to Walk us through— How do you negotiate for the release of an American held in Moscow while Moscow is engaged in an unprovoked war in Ukraine, for which we are taking very strongly the other side?
5: Well, uh, first, Joy, I give credit to the president and the Biden administration for the final release. Yes, Mm -hmm. I did help set it up. I was there in Moscow a day before the invasion. It was a very tense time. I met with Russian officials. Press for the release of Trevor Reed, uh, mentioned Yaroshenko. Uh, then the president and the White House made the decision to proceed with the exchange. And I think it was the right decision. You know, we have hostages in over 40 countries. This is a Marine uh, who was wrongfully detained. There's another Marine there. There's Brittany Greiner. We have to consider how important these Americans are all around the world in North Korea in Iran and Venezuela where they're detained as bargaining chips but i commend the president this was a big triumph for him he made the decision to proceed with the prisoner exchange and i commend the reed family because they went to the president and they met with the president and convinced him that this should happen and there's so many parents uh, all around the america joy that that have prisoners in many countries that deserve mm-hmm. that kind of strength from their government. And it happened.
2: Yeah. Let me let me uh, play. Um, I'm going to just read what President uh, Biden's statement was today. He said that the um, uh, safe return is a testament to the pr- uh, priority my administration places on bringing home Americans held hostage and wrongfully detained abroad. We won't stop until Paul Whelan and others join Trevor uh, in the loving arms of our family and friends. As some folks noted that there was Trevor and uh, and others in. Um, Paul Whelan was named. Um, Brittany Griner was not named in person. Is there a art and a science to who you talk about publicly and who you don't in these matters? And because there have been stories out there that there's a concern that putting a lot of emphasis on Brittany Griner by name could actually hurt her situation more.
5: Well, Joy, I, I am involved in trying to help with both Whelan and uh, Brittany Griner, but but this is an administration decision. I think it's been the correct one. Keep it low key. This is a very high profile and important person, Brittany Griner. And, and it's got to be done delicately. The good news, if there's any good news here in the American-Russian relationship, which over Ukraine is in shatters, is that Both countries, especially Russia, agreed to negotiate on this very, very important humanitarian, but uh, what should I say, minuscule effort compared to the whole invasion uh, Mm -hmm. and our policy. So that's good news for Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner. It means the Russians maybe are ready to talk on humanitarian narrow issues. And the administration made it clear. And Mm -hmm. I'm not a member of the administration. They don't tell me what to do. I have a mm-hmm. private humanitarian effort, and I've had experience, mostly pretty good,
2: in getting hostages yeah. out. So, well, well, and, um, and talk this is about I, I, I do want to ask you about that designation. So, there, and you mentioned Konstantin Yaroshenko. This is the Russian, he's a 53 year old former Russian pilot who's serving 20 years in Danbury, Connecticut federal prison for conspiracy to bring drugs in the U.S., just so people know who Yaroshenko is. Why are these considered hostages, not prisoners?
5: Well, um, Trevor Reed is wrongfully detained, and we have given him that designation. Yaroshenko is somebody the Russians wanted; uh, they mm-hmm. wanted him. Uh, he is a prized uh, hostage they consider. No, this man was arrested as a pilot on drug charges, and the Justice Department has uh, kept him, I think, thirteen years in prison. He mm-hmm. also was sick. I, I was—I've right. been working on this for two years. He—he he had. Physical problems. So, but but it's a good deal for us. We get an American Marine, young, who was uh, uh, right now in bad health. Um, yeah. he had a he had uh, all kinds of physical problems. Um, he's home. He's coming home. Yeah. And- And so the next step is is uh, Brittany and Paul Whelan. We can't forget Whelan. He's been there as long as Trevor Reed. But I think this is a positive step. And I give credit to the president for making this decision.
2: Well, we thank you for being here, and we certainly uh, are very happy for the Reed family, our EED family, um, and we're very happy that they're going to have their son back home uh, and get, be able to hug him, and hopefully his health will improve. Ambassador Bill Richardson, thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, and still ahead, big happenings in the Supreme Court as the justices prepare to rule on some truly momentous issues. The First Amendment of the Constitution clearly states that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That is known as the Establishment Clause. And when it was challenged in the past, the Supreme Court clearly stated that the First Amendment has erected a wall between church and state. That wall must be kept high and impregnable. We could not approve the slightest breach. But in recent years, that impregnable wall has developed some very severe cracks. Remember Judge Roy Moore, the self-proclaimed Ten Commandments judge chosen to be Alabama's chief justice? You might remember him mostly for the pedophilia-related allegations, which he denied, that marred his Trump-endorsed run for the United States Senate. He was defeated by iconic civil rights lawyer Doug Jones. But back in 2001, Judge Moore became the hero of the religious right. When under cover of night, he unilaterally had a 5,000 pound granite monument to the Ten Commandments installed in the rotunda of Alabama's state judicial building. A year later, a district judge ruled that the statue violated the Establishment Clause and it was ultimately removed. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear the case. That was then. Today, after years of Republican political campaigning, aiming to restore Christian indoctrination in schools and a well-resourced, disciplined campaign to fill the courts with members of the Christian right, it seems that a newly constructed 6-3 conservative court is ready to give its seal of approval. Yesterday, the court heard arguments involving a Washington State assistant football coach named Joseph Kennedy a public school employee who repeatedly led his players in prayer at the 50 yard line immediately after games. A number of his players expressed their discomfort, claiming that they felt pressured to pray. He claimed it was private expression of prayer during business hours. The school informed him that his public prayer violated state law and school guidance. They offered him multiple accommodations, which he declined. He was placed on administrative leave and during that time his contract expired. He claims he was fired and filed suit. All of the lower courts ruled against him. Now, naturally, that turned him into the newest martyr of the religious right, and he took his case to the Supreme Court. Well, yesterday, the conservative justices signaled that they may indeed side with Coach Kennedy. With me now, Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for the nation, and Robert Jones, CEO and founder of Public Religion Research Institute and the author of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Thank you both for being here. And Ellie, I'm going to start with you. The New York Times did a review of, of court rulings, r- recent court rulings. And this is, it was published by something called, the, or the New York Times did a story about the Supreme Court Review, which did a study documenting a 35% point in percentage point increase in the rate of rulings in favor of religion in orally argued cases, culminating in an 81% success rate in the court under Chief Justice Roberts. This is the most pro, they're saying it's the most pro-religion court in, uh, since World War II. It's really the more pro, most pro-Christianity court. So when you look at that record, it's pretty clear that this coach is going to win, right?
7: Yeah, he's going to win and the question is really how. Because people need to understand, this man was not fired for praying. You do not get fired in American culture for praying to a Christian God. You got some, you know, my Muslim friends, you know, call me later because that that doesn't apply to you. But if you're praying to a Christian God, that's not nothing's going to happen to you. This man had his contract unrenewed for being insubordinate and churlish all right because first yes he was praying with the kids well that clearly is unconstitutional. i don't even think the court is gonna let him get away on that it's gonna, gonna let him skate on that right but then he threw a hissy fit and still had to go to the 50 yard line now by himself and pray there then he had to go on good morning america and talk about his hissy fit then he had to have his supporters come to the high school football game now you know i'm catholic my Jesus is spending his Friday nights at a soup kitchen, maybe a methadone clinic. But, you know, these these Catholics, their Jesus is going there for Friday night lights. All right. So then his supporters show up at the high school football game, rush the field when he is praying, putting the students at danger. And that's why they didn't renew his contract. And so what we have to see from the Supreme Court, and I don't know this yet, even based on the oral arguments, we have to see which which insubordinate behavior this current theocratic court is going to allow? Is it just yeah. the good mor- going on Good Morning America part? Is it just the praying on- at the 50-yard line? Or is it going to go all the way back to indoctrinating all the students and making them pray with him?
2: You know, and I'm old enough to remember um, Robbie um, the prayer in schools debates. You know, mm-hmm. in the 1980s, And when I was in high school, there was a lot of action on the religious right, bemoaning the fact that there's no longer pr- Christian prayer in schools. I mean, they weren't they didn't want Muslim prayer in schools. <laughs> they didn't you know they didn't want Jewish prayer in schools. They wanted specifically Christian prayer to be in schools, and 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 they blamed in a lot of ways the courts for taking religion out of the schools. Well, here's their re- their record now. The Christian right has won a lot of cases. There's a United Pentecostal Church versus Newsom case that basically said, you know, they can go and be in church even during COVID. You know, there's the Hobby Lobby case. There's Master Peak Cake Shop. They are on a winning streak. So why is this feeling of persecution not going away when they are winning and winning and winning?
9: Well, look, uh, thanks for having me on. I I think that it really goes to this basic claim, this brazen claim that America is essentially meant to be a white Christian nation. And these are very intentional, very intentional acts, right? This is not – he could have gone to to the parking lot and prayed, but he goes under the lights, 50-yard line. And look, I was a high school athlete, right? I remember – the importance of getting the attention of a coach, yeah. right? To say this is not pressure, whatever. I mean, you show up early, you do the extra laps, and you, if, especially if you're fighting for your place on that team, you do whatever it takes to get noticed. And if you're on that team and you're not Christian and you want to play, you're. It's very clear that you're going to feel this kind of, you know, pray to play uh, kind of pressure on you um, to to get out there and kind of be noticed and be seen as one of the you know team player, one of the. And I think that's really what a part of this is about. It's a state actor it's a, uh, you know, it's a public school. Uh, and what's notable, I think, is he, he said his inspiration was actually a movie that he watched where a coach did this. But in that movie, I actually looked it up. It was a private Christian academy right. that was the setting, right? And now he's taking this to a public school. But I think the big point is, again, this sense that, uh, this, this claim is literally marking territory. That's why it's important that it was on the 50-yard line uh, at a public school. It's marking territory, and this de- declaration, this is a white Christian country, uh, and just one more point, it, it's notable that white white evangelicals, very few Americans today feel like their religious liberties are being threatened. Uh, in fact, the only religious group, the only religious group that believes their religious liberties being threatened are white evangelicals, and 70% of them believe that their uh, religious liberties are being threatened. No other religious groups comes within 30 percentage points of that, yeah. none of them. Um, and the last thing to say, I guess, is that it's also notable that um, the only other clergy that actually stepped up and made public statements in the Bremerton area were actually on the side of the school district um, in mm. this case, not not supporting this prayer in school because they saw it as a threat to religious liberty, which you know most religious groups uh, other than white evangelicals today actually still support.
2: Yeah, I mean, and what happens then, Ellie, because this isn't a, a pro-religion court. It's a pro-just white Christian court. What happens when they strip away the power of the Establishment Clause?
7: Well, what they're trying to do with this, right, is that they want their religious liberty to be able to impose their religion on everybody else. And so part of this larger culture war, war battle is that they want the religious freedom to be bigoted against LGBTQ communities, um, to be bigoted against trans people, um, and to generally kind of foist their religion on you. And it's interesting to me because the very same people who are making this argument that, mm-hmm. that we have to accept their religion in schools are the very same people who will say that we can't force public schools to teach The accurate history of slavery. Right? It's coming out of the same side of their map, right? So you so on the one hand, so 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 that that's a huge like hypocrisy um in in terms of what they're doing.
2: Uh, we're gonna have to have you guys back. You guys are a great duo, we'll have you guys back to talk more about this. Ellie Mastal, Robert Jones, thank you both very much. Up next, the not so free state of Florida becomes ground zero for conservative efforts, speaking of, to ban books from schools and public libraries. Florida continues to be ground zero in the war on education. Dateline, Walton County. Last week, its school district announced that it had pulled 24 books off of school shelves. The titles were from an emailed list of 58 sent by a group called the Florida Citizens Alliance. The far right 501c3 lists respecting ideals of liberty as one of its core values. But their idea of liberty is, well, it's censorship. They're pushing what they call a porn report that list of 58 books that the co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance said were distributed to every school system in Florida. Well, Walton County had just 24 of them, which they pulled for review. And today, the group proudly touted Walton County's actions on Twitter. Among the titles pulled are classics like Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye and Beloved, Judy Blume's Forever, also Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give, which deals with police brutality, and the popular novel 13 Reasons Why. One book on the list, Fifty Shades of Grey, would never in a million years appear in a school library. And then there is the most ludicrous of the books targeted, but not yet removed. As attorney Daniel Yulfelder noted, this image is enough to get a book targeted. It's an image from Everywhere Babies, a children's book by the newborns on the Florida the, the Newborns that's on the Florida Citizens Alliance list, which was flagged for depicting same-sex couples, and in one case a same-sex interracial couple. Yul Felder, who's running for Florida Attorney General, told USA Today that the group wants to ban the book because it conflicts with Section 27 of the Florida Constitution, which says marriage is between a man and a woman. Equally disturbing is the group's so-called strategic partners. Among the groups listed on its website, the Florida Oath Keepers, the Oath Keepers, and at least seven different Tea Party groups. So naturally, the Florida Citizens Alliance found a partner in Tea Partier turned MAGA warrior Ron DeSantis so much so that he appointed its founders to its his Education Transition Committee back in 2018, which explains why the Florida Citizens Alliance backed his Stop Woke law, banning anything that makes white students uncomfortable in conversations around race, and his Don't Say Gay law, just a handful of the fronts in the DeSantis culture war that's turned even the Magic Kingdom into a battleground. And Congresswoman Val Dennings joins me to discuss next. Ron DeSantis tries to position himself as a competent MAGA warrior, but his battle with Disney over its opposition to his don't-say-gay law appears to be rather incompetent. After stripping Disney of its self-governing authority last week, the Miami Herald reports that legislators failed to notice an obscure provision in state law that says the state could not do what legislators were doing unless the district's bond debt was paid off. Oops, well, Disney, they did notice, and quietly informed investors that it was confident that the move wouldn't hold up in court because it violated a pledge that Florida made to Disney when it established the Reedy Creek District 55 years ago. DeSantis is also bullying Orange County with his new congressional redistricting map. Last week, he signed the map that erases two districts that sent black representatives to Congress, the 5th District, represented by Congressman Al Lawson, and the 10th District, which includes Orlando— currently represented by Congressman Val Demings. Val Demings? My brain isn't working tonight. Congressman Val Demings, who's running for U.S. Senate, joins me now. Congresswoman, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I think that, you know, banning baby books has, like, fried my brain. Um, thank you so much for being here. Let's talk first about—because, you know, what did go under the radar with all of the talk about Disney and all of the talk about the other things, that uh, the stop woke and all that, is this robbing of Black power— from the same district where Disney is, your district, which DeSantis eliminated, and Al Lawson's district. Your thoughts?
6: Well, Joe, it's great to be back with you. And I'm not really sure what, what that's about, because what we do know is that the voters should choose their representatives. And the representatives do not choose their voters and when I look at the proposed maps coming out of Tallahassee that's exactly uh, what is taking place but and then as you've indicated two districts uh, my district and the district that is represented uh, in North Florida by representative Al Lawson but of course um, you know people are not silent on this uh, everybody deserves good representation. I think that the voters in District 10 and District 5 feel they have a good representation. And so they will be fighting and others will be uh, fighting on their uh, behalf. I guess when you cannot win on your own merit, on your own hard work, on your own record, you draw districts that are clearly a gerrymandered.
2: And, and you know, it feels a little personal. I mean, your husband is the mayor of the county that, you know, where Disney is, he's attacking Disney, um, essentially sticking that county, um, Orange County, with billion, a billion dollars—a dollars—it's de- being called a debt bomb—of a billion dollars if that uh, special district is revoked. Here's what the Orange County tax collector, Scott Randolph, tweeted. If Reedy Creek goes away, the $105 million it collects to operate services goes away. That doesn't just transfer to Orange County because it's independent taxing district. However, Orange County that inherits all the debt and all the obligations with no extra funds. Is Ron DeSantis trying to eliminate your political power and also bankrupt Orange County and Osceola County? Does that feel personal?
6: Well, what I do know is uh, Mayor Jerry Demings is going to continue to look out for what is in the best interest of Orange County residents. That's why they elected him. But look, Joy, Disney is in my district. Uh, I represent Disney and, you know, Disney has been a, a Great community partner for well over 50 years. They employ over 80,000 people. Millions of people come from every part of the globe to experience what we have here. And clearly uh, this decision to strip away Disney's uh, independent status was not clearly thought out. I don't know if it was made in the heat of the moment, but it does come with the cost. Look, Reedy Creek provides fire service, 100 percent of police service is paid for, other emergency services. That bill has to go somewhere. And you've already mentioned the one point one billion dollar bond debt that Disney has. It has to go somewhere and to even contemplate. Giving that or passing that burden onto Orange County residents just yeah. makes absolutely no sense. But look, you know, the legislature passed it, the governor signed it. The person I'm running against, Senator Rubio, certainly hasn't opened his mouth or what he said mm-hmm. was basically, what's, what's the matter with this? It's a good idea. And yeah. so, he, you know, he made a statement, why do we treat Disney differently? Well, what about the residents of Orange County? Right. We're supposed to be taking care of them.
2: And also, well, and the res and the whole state of Florida, because that billion dollar bond there, that's going to go somewhere, not just to Orange County. It's going to all over the state. You mentioned uh, Marco Rubio. You're running against him, and voters are going to have to try to get to the polls. But now they're going to have to get through Ron DeSantis's secret police. Uh, there's no other governor that he has a private police force. He's created is the nation's only elected election police unit, which I presume is going to have a-, a lot of focus on people who look like you and me. What is that going to do to your ability, your voters, voters who want to vote for you versus Rubio ability to actually exercise their right to vote?
6: You know, Joy, someone once said you can make voting uh, more difficult, but you can't make it uh, impossible. And look, the bottom line is in the 2020 election cycle, I believe the governor said that we had the most secure uh, voting process, that actually it was a model for the nation to Follow Well, if that be the case, and and quite frankly, I agree with that. And the uh, elections are agreed with that supervisor of elections agreed with that. And if that be the case, why do we need to implement this secret force to do what exactly at the polls? I don't know about other voters, but I know that Florida voters are determined to turn out and vote. We're yep. going to give them a good reason to turn out. They can fo- turn out and vote for okay. me for the United States Senate.
2: All right. Well, I am I am all of Chris Hayes' time. So I'm going to thank you, uh, Congresswoman Val Demings, who was running for the United States Senate. Thank you. That is tonight's readout.
8: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.